Thank you, uh, Alex. Um, as you all know, I'm, I work at the CMS, the regulator for the medical schemes industry. And the presentation I'm doing today is on the framework that Council has adopted on low-cost options. Um, it's, it's been a long time, I think we've been working on this, and I mean, Roseanne also gives quite a lot of history around how long this has been in the pipeline, but we haven't really got to a point where we could see it actually being implemented. So I'm just going to cover what, what, the, what we, we are at, at the moment with Council as well. Um, so Council has adopted the framework in trying to consider how we introduce these options in the environment. It has approved some principles, and a lot of it, I think, has, is as a result of all the work that has been done in the past. Um, and in January, it decided we will adopt the, princip the, the, the principles, but there's work that still needs to be done before we can actually start operating and having these options available in the market. Um, if our circular, the circular 9 of 2015, gave an outline of the principles that Council wants to consider when looking at um, the framework and the options going forward. And what we've done is we've taken that on and um, using Circular 9 and uh, the Indaba that was I'll touch on later in, in, in March to try to get feedback from the industry as to what their views were around the principles in the circular. And also we also provided uh, information to the industry as to how we can implement these type of options in the current environment. So after the consultative process, we'll have guidelines that we publish to the industry um, that will be approved by council so that we may introduce these options in the market. Um, Obviously, we all know we want, there's, a, there's a sector of the market that doesn't have access to these sort of benefits. And uh, the idea behind it is obviously to increase participation of in individuals that wouldn't have otherwise had the opportunity to. And the main issues that would try to achieve that is dealing with affordability challenges, provide benefits that cater to the need of the market, and ensuring that the quality of ensuring the quality of the of the cover that is provided. So in terms of the council, how would how would it exist in the current environment? Because obviously as a regulator we can't we have to apply and enforce the the regulation and the act. But also within that what is what what freedom do we have as the council to allow these type of options. So we, the way in which council has chosen to deal with it is using uh, Section 8H of the Act, which uh, gives council the power to exempt uh, medical schemes from complying with certain provisions. Um, and if we read Section 8H, it's, uh, um, the council may exempt in exceptional cases subject to terms and conditions and for a period as the council may determine. So what this means is that um, the, the council has the power to do that, uh, but the case must be exceptional. Now, when we say we've adopted the framework, the council in principle has adopted that or accepted that the case for low-cost benefit options is, accept is exceptional. So we have to look at trying to introduce these options. Um, if we, there's a SCA judgment, MediHealth versus Minister of Finance, where 
the, 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 the section was actually the court gave a broader interpretation of what that means and exceptional meaning unusual or out of the ordinary so out of our normal spaces uh, medical uh, is a council um, the exceptional cases obviously must be determined it must be not a discussion but as a matter of fact I mean we have a lot of data and information as to why this is uh, these options are necessary um, and a strict view of the applications must be taken the exemptions also are on a section by section so it's not a blanket exemption from the act but it's exemption from certain provisions that will enable uh, medical schemes to to provide these benefits so the onus would be then on applicants so this is I think down the line after we have a framework but what would what it would mean is applicants would have to present facts to make obviously the case for these options um, in, in general we have done that already but I think uh, it then goes into the detail of what the schemes intend presenting um, obviously we want to ensure members are protected um, the exemptions obviously must be connected to the or the information must speak to why you need an exemption the exceptional case um, we also the council in making that decision must have obviously considered it and decided wh whether or not to grant them and also important thing the council is at liberty to impose conditions or partially exempt if if it if it needs so it, uh, going into the background of the framework um, and I think a lot of it I mean, Roseanne did touch on it but uh, just in, in more detail um, we want to make sure that the existing risk pool is protected so we don't want to fragment and I think a lot of discussion and debate followed in the past around how we present prevent buy downs or how we create an environment where people may buy up whether an underwriting would apply um, on the in those cases so we want to find ways in which we can minimize that obviously uh, natural barriers to buy downs would be no or limited cover for hospitalization I think council was of the view or had an open view as to whether limiting or having no hospital cover is uh, or the limit would be a natural barrier enough and not uh, having benefits with no hospitalization um, the other area which is obviously difficult for the council and I think without research or having experience in this area because nobody's done this in the past um, the eligibility so for example would income verification be enough because we have if we look at the thresholds of income there are options in the market that already operate in, at that income level so would that be enough or would it be better to have um, options available to groups so those in formal employment so income verification is also easier and the risk of anti-selection is reduced so those are the sort of things that um, council is considering in in, in, uh, in developing the framework in terms of underwriting um, one view was or the council view was that there shouldn't be any late joiner penalties applied because obviously these people never join due to affordability um, and waiting periods obviously will be allowed but again I think it depends on the case being made by the scheme in, in uh, and, and whether they request an exemption from that provision um, following circular 9 there were some comments from the industry which I just like to share with you um, 
and w one of it was that these options obviously need to be as part of a medical scheme. So it's an option within a scheme, it's not a scheme on its own. Um, there, were issue, there were comments or ideas put forward that maybe we could have uh, an open enrollment period like we had previously where no underwriting would apply. Um, but in this framework, there isn't uh, a starting date where we, it, it's blanketly applied because exemptions are as and when a scheme apply and they would be considered by council. Um, obviously, some schemes gave the, the option of um, exempting them from community rating or introducing risk rating. That was some of the comments. Um, upgrading to higher plans would require underwriting. So that's some of the comments. And then around the open enrollment issue and the exemption from open enrollment, um, the comments were that we need to restrict membership by income. Difficulty obviously was determining that, especially in the informal uh, sector, how we may consider providing these benefits in, in areas where there is a defined network because then the delivery, ben delivery of the benefits is uh, more efficient because schemes already have those sort of facilities or contracts or arrangements in place. Um, obviously the uncovered lives, so when we look at um, buy-downs or um, late joiners, late joiner penalties, we want to ensure that these are previously uncovered. And I think maybe just another idea to put forward is what if we considered a framework where people weren't allowed to buy down but had an option to have both. So that's also a consideration because the Act current doesn't, doesn't allow you to have both. Would that reduce the risk of buy-downs? So you'd have a hospital cover, but if you want, if you're within that income category, for example, if you're in an income-based option with hospitalization, you could maybe take this up as well. But I think that is uh, something that we could consider, and that's part of the exemption process, that if there is a plausible case for that, council may consider that. I think it's important that we we, we, we try that because obviously the we don't have all the answers. But then again, employer groups and mandatory membership for those groups. Um, in terms of geographical coverage, um, the option should be, some of the comments were around using the existing networks that schemes have because obviously there's already arrangements um, and it, to introduce an option it would be a, a, um, a better case for schemes to do that. Um, uh, we Obviously the council needs to take and review those exemptions as they presented because the intention is to expand coverage and in, in, in most cases informal sector. So, these benefits, if you restrict them to geographical areas, would be more urban areas, formerly employed people. So it's a, it's a case that needs to come forward from schemes. Um, and then also out of network cover. And I think that's an important thing because uh, because of the, the, the people that we're targeting, they're not necessarily aware of, uh, of, of completely literate as to what they're entitled to and how they may access it. So there also needs to be some... Um, requirements as to what must be covered uh, out of there. In terms of, so if you look at the exemption from complying with solvency requirements for these options, um, the council feels that obviously they should 
the schemes they provide, it must be financially secure. I mean, arguments around whether they comply with the current requirements is uh, maybe too strong a case because you have bigger schemes that may not be compliant fully but were financially stable enough to provide these types of options. Um, obviously, any exemption application needs to show how it aims to maintain the solvency level and maybe even comply if it's not um, because there are provisions in the Act that allow schemes to not to deviate but have a, have a period of time to comply. So that's the current view and some of the comments received were that these should be excluded um, from, from the solvency calculation um, and that maybe we should include them after we have a risk based capital um, approach but I think we we at the stage now where we can't really make options conditional on something else happening we rather have a framework to allow something to happen over time and then refine it so that's that's the comments that we did receive obviously uh, in terms of non-healthcare expenditure for these options they I mean they have to have to be much lower than what is currently being paid because obviously the, the type of benefits is uh, less onerous to administer but also um, in, in council intention easier to define for members in this uh, environment so we automatically assume that that would be low some of the presentations that the Indaba um, said that if you have a clear defined uh, benefit or package that you provide the providers find it easier to provide benefits because there's less requirements as to what they may submit, how they may submit it. They know exactly what would what would they being paid for, and can provide that without additional admin um, that the, the scheme may face. Uh, in terms of marketing, obviously, very important for the council is to ensure that obviously the right message goes out. Um, the exemptions, obviously, I, I mentioned earlier around. Um, the conditions and um, the powers of the council maybe to review those exemptions um, and also I think education is important because these are people that were previously uncovered um, maybe not sure what they actually need or what benefits are provided by these options and obviously I think the case about the value they find in paying that contribution and what they expect to get out of it so I think it's important that we do that um, type of benefits that we we feel um, that we would review as part of this process um, and mentioned uh, by, by Roseanne as well uh, GP consultations, specialist consultations with referral, acute chronic medication formulary, basic dentistry, optometry, pathology, radiology, emergency services, but then also the hospitalization which council has sort of a view that it could um, look at options that want to consider that but obviously the, the the natural barrier then would be reduced for people to to, to or to reduce the buy down effect um, so obviously um, what they were more comfortable with in this process is to have a minimum set of benefits or guidelines as to what these products may include um, and we busy with that process at the moment you we will be um, sending out requests soon for proposals as to what what that should um, include um, and also what the, the cost effectiveness of those benefits how we would deal with out of out of network 
benefits. And I think the main uh, drive also is to provide benefits that uh, improve health outcomes that are valuable to those members. I think that's important from our perspective because they were a bit wary in providing benefits that the scheme deems that would be useful but don't actually provide any useful benefit or improve health outcomes. So I think that's important that uh, when we consider exemptions and the exemption, the, the, the motivation should consider all of those things. We did consider flexibility of benefit design that was presented initially. Um, but obviously, there's a few concerns, one being uh, the, the target market and, and whether they are aware of what they would be purchasing. So would a predetermined set of benefits, obviously not an onerous set of benefits and not a PMB type where it's based on curing diseases and more around providing certain benefits to deal with any condition uh, was preferred. Um, and, you know, the, 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 that was, I think, gave council more comfort. But I think also if schemes want to go down that route, if they know what is required of them, it makes it actually easier for you to actually present and make a case for um, providing a benefit that has the minimum. Obviously, uh, flexibility in terms of adding other benefits will be allowed. So I think it's more about you want to provide something. This is It complies at least with some minimum, but if you want to add on top of that, that would obviously be considered. So it's not a this is it and that's all, no more than what is, what we, what is guided in our guidelines. Um, then the comments from around benefit design that we got on Circular 9, um, that, that obviously this would require partial or full exemption from PMB requirements. I think that is important. May, maybe some of us working with schemes daily um, feel, that, I mean, that's an obvious thing, but I think it's, it's a new, it's a concept that we need to understand and that council is willing to do. And if we have a standardized minimum level of package uh, or benefits, with, which would include primary care, Obviously, the capitated environment is important to provide it at the cost that would be affordable. Uh, the out-of-network cover is something that schemes need to consider. And hospitalization, possibly uh, in state, council were open to that, of that view. Or also maybe providing it at a limited level, like how current bargaining council schemes have it, where they provide a 50 or 100,000 rand limit whether it's PMB or not, because now you're not looking at the PMB uh, reasoning, reasons for, for um, hospitalization. Um, obviously, the affordability is very important uh, as a key consideration, because by providing the exemption, it gives the council an opportunity and the schemes to constantly review what they've done. So if, if and it's a comment made earlier around, sometimes we need to implement something and we'll learn from that to refine the, what we're actually providing so that it may improve affordability or provide benefits that are actually uh, useful and will achieve the outcomes. And obviously simple and clear design is something I think important for that market because we want that would obviously reduce the, the, the level of non-health but also the comfort that that sector of the market will have in, in knowing what they buy. I think that's important from our side. So as a regulator, we have to look at all sides. So what we've done, what we're busy with at the moment is uh, we're taking, we, we, we're providing um, 
the industry will be providing with a guideline as to what type of benefits should be included and proposals as to uh, at what level and how many or, or what level should they be provided at um, broadly on, on these uh, levels of benefits. Um, but we, you will see a circular out soon where we will be asking for that because I think this process won't be successful unless we get and we, we use the information and the work that has already been done in the industry to inform what will be allowed to, to, to operate in the industry. So that's where we're at at the moment. Um, some of the benefits that the Council views, obviously in the framework that the Council is proposing, is that they fall under the Medical Schemes Act. So we have an opportunity to obviously regulate, but if there are complaints, um, we can manage them. Obviously we have solvency requirements. All that other protections in the Act would then flow automatically to these members. The possible exemption from open enrollment, I think it's a big thing. Um, it was never actually considered before, but it's, it's necessary to allow uh, these options to actually be marketed. Uh, cross subsidies, it's something that will happen, but I think it's something that we'd only really understand in time. Um, obviously the underwriting restrictions, and I spoke about late joiner penalties, the limitation on that would actually try to improve or increase access to those that never had opportunity before. Uh, obviously a renewal of cover, you, once you're a member, you, you know that year on year you may get changes or increases, but that is guaranteed. Um, the opportunity to buy up, so possibility of expanding membership to those that are able to afford but never joined previously. Um, then we have the obviously employer participation, um, that's quite important and they may also be quite a big driver in increasing the number of members uh, in these options and benefits that are targeted to need and affordability. So. Obviously, we've given the broad outline. Um, we've had a consultation with the industry. Um, we had a Indaba. At the Indaba, we had a few managed care companies presenting. We had BHF and we had Insight and those that obviously supported a lot of these principles and wanted to see this actually getting to a point where we can actually implement these options. So, we will be presenting circulars and requesting for further information from schemes because we need that to inform what our council ultimately approves and requires as a minimum. If needed, we may have further interaction with the industry. I mean, if you're all aware of our website and you know getting involved with our processes and also refining the approach that, uh, that we will have regarding these options. So what, what will happen then is obviously council will adopt it. Council will, firstly, will have to revise the guidelines and once they're comfortable, will adopt it and schemes then will be invited to submit applications based on those guidelines and providing the necessary um, motivations and data and explanations. That's where we are. Just quick one thing, Paresh, um, timelines, do you have a feel, is it months away, is it a month away, yeah. is it, do you plan to implement for 2016? Yes, I think uh, it would be more about when, when the guidelines are out and in, in the final form, then schemes will be invited to submit, 
and as and when you submit, council will then have to look at each case separately and decide whether to give exemption or not. So we're planning to release a circular uh, soon within the next week or two and uh, give a, a sort of timeline for schemes to submit proposals as to the, uh, that deals with these broad principles. And depending on what we receive, it may inform a lot of what we would input in the guidelines and would put for council to consider. Because one of the important points that council had was that we need to consult with the industry because we don't want to decide to provide something which actually doesn't meet the need and doesn't you know, achieve the outcomes that we wanted to achieve. So there will be something out soon. So I think just keep a tab on our website and you should see it. Patrice, um, you talked about um, automatic re um, renewal if you're a member on, on, on these low-income schemes, but if you're a scheme, um, do you envisage that you're going to have to um, apply for exemption every year? Well, I think not every year, maybe every year. depends on what the scheme applies for, but again, the council will give a conditional exemption for a period. So the scheme may have to reapply, but obviously the, the purpose of it is to ensure that they are um, complying with the requirements of the exemption and not... Uh, so, for example, if, if the council picks up, there's some misleading advertising going to these members. That may be a reason for them to uh, put stricter conditions in the exemption or request the schemes to revise what they're doing. Because, uh, and also it gives them the benefit of uh, the schemes coming back and wanting to refine or revise some of the exemptions they obtained. The thing is, because we work in this environment, the only mechanism that we have is via the exemption mechanism. So that's also the way in which it can control what is being provided, but gives the schemes the benefit also of coming back and revising and improving what they have done. So I think once it's granted, it's not a... a um, a case of you have to redo all what you've done. It's more about maintaining and improving what you have been doing. Because if you look at the bargaining council schemes, they have some had two and some have four-year exemptions, and it's more about uh, demonstrating that they're still providing benefits that are valuable to those members. Um, in some cases, improving the benefits to the extent where they can provide uh, benefits for eight to up to thirteen. CDL conditions in full under the exemption. So in some cases it's it's a way in which the schemes using the efficiencies they've gained in this process, expanding the cover to get more closer to the, the PMB type of package, even though it may be only out of hospital type of benefits. So it's the the opportunity is there to more to expand and improve than to use as a tool to restrict. I think that's the idea around exemptions. But obviously we have to have a longer term view and I think in time, council may then have the opportunity to uh, legislate or change regulations to allow these type of options. We also know that the minister always uh, has issues around primary health care not being included in the PMB package. So how can, over time, we develop something in, in, in those lines that would ultimately be included in, in the package? I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but the opportunity then is there to do that. Hi, Conrad here. Um, thanks for the presentation and thanks Rosanne as well. Um, when I first came across um, low-income medical schemes, I had an impression that 
um, care in the public sector had a lot left to be desired. Um, so the private sector could step in and provide good services. And I know there's some good low-cost um, networks out there. Um, but I'm just wondering, since then, has there's been a lot of investment in public clinics, hospitals, in, in the public, so the public sector's developed quite a lot. Um, so I'm just wondering, in terms of limbs in the private sector, is there still a need for it, or is it more sort of a luxury product aimed at that market? Thanks. Thanks. Uh, well, I think uh, any insurance product that we have is driven by need. So if people find that they value a certain benefit or product, they'll be willing to pay for it. So that obviously suggests that there is something that is desired, not to say that there's something lacking. It's evident by the number of insurance products that you get offering these types of benefits. So the benefit of us doing it in this vehicle is that we can bring more uh, protection of the members and control in this environment where it's catered more for those type of benefits. So it's not assuming that they, it hasn't been done before. It's more about how we create an environment to enable it to flourish within our environment. So I think uh, we're not taking away what is being provided already in the facilities, but if you, if you go through the LUM survey, I know although it's old, um, some of the, the conclusions reached there are still valid now in that people are willing to pay something to get access to a certain benefit. But the importance is what that benefit is and that they can perceive the value in that benefit. That's an important principle that we need to keep in mind. It's uh, Rosani from MedScheme. Um, under the, the standard benefits section, you had a, a point there about out-of-network cover. I, I find that to be a bit of a... If something is out-of-network, the intention is not to cover it. Um, so I don't know what you mean by out-of-network cover. If you could just clarify that. I think it's more about what, what would happen in cases where a member is not in the area where your provider is. And it's not about creating a standard, but what is, in exceptional cases, what would you do? And the council was concerned that you, you provide an exemption to restrict benefits to a certain geographical area because of the benefit you provide. But what happens in those extreme cases? What, what has the scheme put in place to ensure at least there is something that would meet a need, even though not fully, because I think the, the principles we're putting here is not to cover conditions, but to, to provide a benefit for a need, but to a certain extent. So that then needs to be demonstrated by a scheme as to how it would allow for or cater for those needs. I think it's, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Um, hi, Andre from Insight. Um, before this current process started, have schemes um, applied for exemption in the past, and what were the outcomes of that? Uh, schemes, so there's two types, the bargaining council schemes, and those were as a result of them operating in an environment where those benefits for a very long time. If you look at the examples put up there, like food workers, um, it's for seasonal workers for a brief period, that earn uh, daily wages and a percentage of that gets paid. So in terms of the Medical Schemes Act, the transitional arrangement was that all schemes providing ben relevant health benefits need to be registered under the Medical Schemes Act, but in order to allow them to be there, they needed these exemptions. So those were, that was the exceptional case for those. 
but other schemes that may have submitted in the past could not be considered because council never had a framework in place to say if we had granted the exemption how do we ensure that what is being provided and how can we monitor what is being provided by these options because we in our own minds not clear as to uh, the framework so that that's why this is important in that how we, we may regulate these options going forward we need a framework and guiding principles so that we can apply that to schemes um, applying for this exemption um, <clears throat> thanks if I can take the liberty of asking another question um, on the on the point of exemption having to apply in exceptional cases um, what would distinguish one open scheme from another open scheme in being exceptional and wanting to provide a low-cost benefit? Yeah, I think that's the whole point of the framework in that the council has um, acknowledged that the case for low-cost is exceptional. So it will consider schemes applying for the exemption. So that's the so it's not a differentiating between schemes. It's saying that when they are applied for, we will consider them now because we acknowledge that it is a case that needs that it is an already an exceptional case how do we have guidelines and frameworks in place that we may allow them to operate hi thanks for thanks Maresh. okay I think two of my questions have been answered already last last speaker uh, what I want to know was very much related to the you know that again a definition on restrictive and whether going forward that restriction will now not be as restrictive so that companies will be willing to spend the time and effort obviously to develop low-cost options knowing there's not gonna be that onerous to get approved I think in the past it may have been that the exceptional thing would have put a lot, a lot of companies off so I think you clarified that bit so I'm happy with that that it will be viewed a bit differently based on framework and guidelines so that part I'm happy with just the other bit, I think if we are going to design these low-cost options, uh, a lot of the structure may very well look very similar to what's already been provided via the medical insurance products, in my view. Uh, we just need to make sure that in that case, if we really want to compete, and we still want to use traditional distribution channels like brokers, the commission levels would have to be quite different. So currently, we have the 3% commission up to 75 rand. Uh, medical insurance would use currently use about 20 percent so you're looking at close to 50 to 75 and on a typical cost of 250 to 300 uh, if you use the same traditional three percent for example you're looking at eight rand to 12 to 10 rand uh, no one no broker will be willing to sell that it may be a very similar competing product so I think we need to almost look at revising that to be something consistent with that just from a distribution perspective or find alternative distribution channels. Yeah, I think that I think maybe the schemes may also. I mean, if they if there's an exemption request around broker fees, that's something that also may come forward. I'm not saying that it is, but also the debate around what type of medical insurance products will be allowed to continue is also may it's a part of the demarcation debate. So I don't know how much is it going to be a matter of competition or. Um, Providing alternatives, I think that's that's where maybe the demarcation would answer some of those those questions. Paresh, if I may just extend that same question, um, if the demarcation regulations come out and they say medical insurance can provide whatever in reimbursement under fifty thousand rand, etc., 
Um, but obviously they can risk rate and there's no PMBs and no open enrollment. Um, to what extent is that equity or that equal playing field going to affect this space? So could a scheme also ask for a product below 50,000 with those same conditions and then for operate in that, on an equal sort of playing field? I think to answer your second question, yes, but those options or those products are more gap type of products. So they don't deal with providing benefits, but more re the reimbursement of benefits that are not covered entirely by medical schemes. If you look at the last version of the demarcation regulations, it deals with income shortfall and, and gap, gap sort of type of benefits. It doesn't deal with the medical insurance type benefits where it's an indemnity type of benefit at, that current uh, medical insurance companies provide. So there is a difference, but obviously if schemes can comply with the minimum which the council is comfortable with, then they may structure benefits in different ways. So I think it's not about restricting flexibility, but it's ensuring that what is provided can be provided in a simple way to those people so that they, you know, it reduces non-health, it reduces the misleading opportunity for members to be misled or the wrong message getting out. I think that's mainly the, the minimum that the scheme, the council would require, but then above that, it will depend on the scheme uh, as to what they want to provide. Um, Paresh, I, I want to probe the, the entire question of using exemption as the mechanism to facilitate this. And I think based on your, based on your comments at the SBO workshop earlier this year, I appreciate that this stems from an attempt to fast track the process of getting something in place. Um, but you know, even if you look carefully at the way that you're dealing with the exceptional requirement in 8H, uh, there's a sense of awkwardness around providing a framework for exceptional circumstances and all the other things being said, I think exemption remains a clumsy or arbitrary or undesirable long-term mechanism. So what I'm missing from your slides and what I would like your comments on is just your your plan in terms of a trajectory towards incorporating this in regulation and ultimately in the Medical Schemes Act? Well, I, I, I mean, I did touch on it, and it depends on where the industry goes with us. I mean, if we, if, if all the evidence suggests that we'd increase the number of people participating by 3.6 million, as was mentioned, and it doesn't, or maybe exceeds that, and the type of benefits that may be covered exceeds that, then the opportunity then would there would be an opportunity then to include it in regulation and legislation. But I think the opportunity now that we're trying to deal with is having a, something in place so that we, over time, can get to a point where we're comfortable what, with what must be provided and that it actually achieves the desired result. So under no circumstance do we feel that this process won't lead to a bigger development over time. But I think for us to, to get some work going and try to deal with the challenges we have, even though it's seven, eight years down the line. At least this is an opportunity to do that. I think that's what we feel at, as, as a council, is it is an opportunity to expand and grow further. So I hope I, maybe it's taken in that way, but it's not uh, short-sighted, and it obviously depends on what happens over time. I think we're going to have a conditional exemption for two years, for example. We may develop over time uh, refined benefit structure schemes would 
evolve to a situation where we know exactly what should be required and what at what cost, and that is complies exactly with the primary healthcare requirements of the department. So it, I mean, there may be synergies and may then be an easy incorporation in what, into what we already have. But I think we don't have those answers now, and maybe in time we can get there. Thanks. I think we must wrap up. Um, some very good points. Thanks, Paresh. A small token as well. Cheers.